Genesis 11. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the whole face of the earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Matt. Uh, bit of housekeeping first. Can you hear me okay? Is this mic working? In the back? If you, yeah, good. Okay. Uh, my name is Stephen Backhouse. For some of you who, some of you, actually most of you probably don't know who I am. My wife and I, uh, we attend the 8 a.m. service most of the time, but we do come here sometimes as well at the 6, so it's very nice to be here with you tonight. Um, I, we live in Oxford, but I'm a teacher. I teach at St. Paul's Theological College in London, and some of you might know my boss is Graham Tomlin, who used to attend this church. Uh, also, in case any of you are wondering, this accent that you hear, this is what you sound like if you're a Canadian who's lived in England for 13 years. So you don't have to spend the whole time wondering, where is he from? Okay, I'm just going to open in short prayer. Jesus, you are Lord. And uh, everything that we do, we do because of you. I do pray that this evening... Anything true or useful that I might say would stick, and anything false or foolish that I might accidentally say would disappear. And I do pray that tonight we really would learn something good and true today. Amen. Right, our text is Genesis 11. Now, I chose to just look at the famous story of the Tower of Babel. I'm sure Matt is glad that he didn't have to read the stuff at the end with all the long names, but we'll get into that in a bit. Um, of course, Babel is culturally quite an important uh, story, this story that we have. It's given us, amongst many other things, the idea of babbling, which means confusion and chaos. So I want you to know, the team at the back of the music team, we worked really hard to make sure that there was technical difficulties, because we wanted to give you a flavor of what chaos and, and was like. So it, it was on purpose. It was on purpose. So over the next uh, 20 minutes or so, we're going to look at this passage, and we're going to break it down in three main ways, and these are the ways you approach any text in the Bible, uh, certainly an ancient and complicated story like this one. So the first thing I'm going to look at is, where is this text? Where is it located? What is its context? Then I'm going to look at, what is it that we've got? What is this thing that we've got? What are its distinguishing features? Uh, that's related to the third thing I'm going to look at, which is, uh, what does it do? What use did the Hebrews put this story to in the Old Testament, and what use do, did the Christians put to it in the New Testament? All right, so where is this text? 
What is the context of the Tower of Babel? Well, it comes immediately uh, after a table or a list of nations, uh, and immediately before a genealogy, uh, which is, has quite a long list of names in it. But the most important name, perhaps, for our purposes, is that it ends up with Terah, uh, who is the father of Abram, who, of course, becomes the father of the people of Israel. So right away, we know that this story is happening right just before the creation of the people whom this book is all about. Okay. It's also the last plot point in a, seri- a cycle of stories that have happened in Genesis 1 to 11, and we've been looking at that over the last few Sundays. Um, Genesis 1 to 11 is a very specific section of Genesis, which basically takes a lot of uh, legends, stories that were known to the people all over the region, all the Mesopotamian people would have had similar stories. So the creation stories, the flood stories, the stories about the people who lived for hundreds of years, uh, the semi-divine angelic beings, the heroes. Um, If you read through Genesis 1 to 11, all of those stories have counterparts amongst the people groups that lived in the region. Now, for a lot of these other peoples, these stories, if you read them or if you look at them, you notice that a lot of them sort of lead to basically triumphalistic accounts of those people's exploits. Basically, their people are heroes, which in turn means that the, the, the nation that grew out of those heroes, they're also heroes. They're godlike. A lot of the stories lead towards being godlike. Now, what the Old Testament does with these familiar stories is it, it twists them. Sometimes it twists them to the exact opposite meaning of what the neighboring tribes would have said. It injects an alternative theology into these stories, an alternative message. Humans are important. We know this from Genesis. Humans are the high point of creation. What we do matters to God and it matters to the universe. But just because we're important doesn't mean we're divine. It doesn't mean that we are little gods. The history of the human relationship to God from Genesis 1 to 11 is not one of humans becoming more godlike, but actually, it seems to be one that at every step, humans are opposing God. We take God's gifts and we've turned them or we've abused them. And that is where this Tower of Babel story comes in. So God has twice already in uh, 1.28 and again in 9.1, which I think you might have looked at last week, God has already twice commanded his creation to be fruitful and spread out across the world. All right? Big command. That's significant in Genesis. Then in chapter 10, we get this table of nations, which describes uh, a lot of the known, most of the known people groups who are living in that region. And chapter 10 goes to great pains to point out that these people had their own languages and they were living all over the, they were spread across the map. They had their own heroes. Uh, There's a chap named Nimrod who shows up, and Nimrod was the first mighty hunter, and he was told, we are told he's the first empire builder, and one of the cities he built was, was Babel. And from chapter 10, you could get a sense of, look at all the nations, look at all the languages, look how great we are, yay us. But then chapter 11 comes in, and it sort of revisits the events. It goes back in time. And it suggests that once again, this spread of humans across the land 
maybe isn't quite such a cause for triumphalistic celebration as perhaps some of the other peoples would have thought. This spread across the land really came as a result of sin and disobedience. And it's worth noting a distinguishing feature here, the sin of, of Babel. Um, it wasn't that people were working together. It's not that they were creating towers and cities. Um, if you look at 11.4, it's basically it's because they were trying to bring honor to themselves in pride and in fear. They were fearful of being scattered, and so they were disobeying God's command to spread out. The punishment that they get for this is God's way of, of breaking up the pride and undermining the fearful defensive schemes that the people have, uh, which is the imposition of multiple languages. But again, it's interesting, the point of this, of this punishment even is not so much the languages that people are speaking, but the fact that the ears of the people were closed. So if you look at 11.7, I'm sorry, I don't have a PowerPoint, but if you look at 11.7, you'll see that the emphasis is on that the people couldn't the people couldn't listen, or they could not understand some translations have each other's speech. Well, I've already started actually talking about what this text is, so we're just going to keep going into that. What is this text? Well, it's a satire, and it's an origin story. So a satire, much like uh, Private Eye, or a Spitting Image, or um, was it the uh, Have I Got News For You? Often those satires <laughs> contain more home truths about their subjects uh, than conventional sources, so the Times or News at 10. So often the satire contains something more pointed, more true about the people that they're talking about. Uh, and that certainly seems to be a case for this story, that it's highlighting truths about human nature that the more conventional stories about empire building wouldn't contain. What would be really readily apparent to Hebrew readers uh, the original audience, and not to us, uh, is that this is a very finely crafted story. It's very deliberate. It leaps off the page how it's been carefully constructed. Uh, a reader is put on notice that what they're doing, they are reading a deliberately constructed satire, even a comic piece. Okay? There's 11 verses, and they balance each other out very well. You can put them on a, ski, on a, on a grid. The text is full of uh, puns and alliteration. Now, um, okay, I'm going to warn you here. It's a bit like Shakespeare's comedies. Bible jokes aren't very funny. Um, puns are rarely funny in the original language, in the original context. Um, so when you translate puns that are more than 2,000 years old, you, you don't get a barrel of laughs. But you might get an idea of what's going on here. So in these 11 verses, for instance, um, the text is quite dense with repeated sounds that are meant to trip off the tongue. And there's an N sound, a B sound, an L sound. There's lots of wordplay. So for instance, when man says, let us make bricks, that's nilbena. And then God says, let us mix up the people, that's nalbela, which in turn is close to nebala, which is folly, which leads naturally to, the, to one of the stings in the tail, which is the Hebrew meaning for Babel, which is confusion. Like I said, it's hilarious, isn't it? It's really funny. <laughs> anyway, there you go. There, there's your laugh for the evening, so, so enjoy that. But the point, anyway, you can already start to see, the point is to puncture the self-importance, right, of these empire builders. Uh, there's a sly comment. In 11.4, the aim of the humans, which is we don't want to be scattered, right? The, 
it's precisely what does happen to them. In exactly those words, they get scattered in 11.8. The same words of what happened to them is what they said they didn't want to happen to them. So there's irony going on, very kind of obvious. The story centers quite literally around a joke. There's 11 verses, verse 5, there's a joke. Uh, the humans are building, remember, they're building this tower. They want to storm heaven. They want to be like gods. They want to reach um, into the heavens. Uh, and yet God has to come all the way down just to see this thing. He can't even see it from where he lives. That's the joke. Uh, we're so puny, and the, the, the schemes that we build up are so small compared to God. So that's one of the things. This is a satire. The other thing is, this is an origin story. Now, many of you know, I can see a few of you in this audience, do you know that I'm a big nerd? Uh, and being a big nerd, I like comic books and I like science fiction, things like Star Wars. And in, I've never come across a single one of these works of fiction in which there isn't a villain that has an origin story. And also, the bad guys are always eternal and equal villains to the good guys. The light force always counteracts the dark force, and they're always fighting. The Green Goblin is always coming back to defeat Spider-Man another day, or Spider-Man gets to defeat the Green Goblin. So I've said that Genesis 11 um, ends with a polemical pun on the name Babel. So who is this origin story then? That Babel, whose self-importance is Genesis puncturing? Well, Babel, of course, is the same name as Babylon. The plain uh, in the country of Shinar, which is uh, in 11 verse 2, that's where this great city, this great empire of Babylon was based. The Babylonians said that their name meant the gateway to the gods, the tower that reaches heaven. The Hebrews say, no, it doesn't. It means confusion and chaos. So now we're getting into what this text does, what purpose it serves for the Old Testament. So it's an it's origin story and a satire for the most consistent enemy of God and God's people that appears in the Bible. Uh, the Hebrew people were enslaved or dominated by the Babylonian Empire at key times throughout their history. Much of the Old Testament was written while they were in Babylonian captivity, in exile. A lot of scholars think Genesis was written while the, the Jews were in exile under Babylonian domination. The name Babylon is thus has weighty theological significance. Whenever you see the name Babylon, you can think of an empire with swords and spears and horses, but you can also think of what that represents. For example, uh, in Isaiah 14, 13 to 15, the prophet speaks about human pride, and he exemplifies it uh, by mentioning the king of Babylon. He, he sees pride as the king of Babylon. You have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. In Daniel, starting at Daniel 2 and then on from there, um, he prophesies against Babylon and other empires but uh, when he envisions this statue with a golden head, and the golden head is Babylon because it's reaching into the, into the clouds, into the heavens, but then it gets smashed to pieces. Uh, in Zechariah 5, this is quite a fun one, 5, 5 to 11, he talks about the land of Shinar. He doesn't mention Babylon, but he talks about the land of Shinar as being the home of the world's iniquity, and he talks about it like a big 
bucket or a big basket that's just filled with sin and evil, and it gets kind of dumped onto the land of Shinar. So Babylon here stands for, it's like a code word or a metaphor for basically any human group, organization, empire that has set itself against God and has grown inhuman as a result. I think Babylon is basically the state that we get into when we live in willful disobedience. And uh, another theme of the whole Bible is God's actions to thwart this human pride and disobedience, and that gets traced through the scriptures. So that's true for the New Testament as well, which we're going to look at now. The story of the tower does cast quite a shadow over the New Testament, uh, including significantly Acts 2, which you could look at now. I'll read it out, which is also known as the time of Pentecost. Um, for the earliest Christians, the presence of Jesus and his spirit marked a new turn in the history of God's dealings with, with man. And it's no accident that the first thing that happens when Jesus sends his Holy Spirit, or the, whole, the, whole, the early church experiences the Holy Spirit for the first time, and what do they do? They speak in different languages. This is significant for Luke when he's writing Acts, because he knows that people are thinking about Babylon. And I'll just read a bit of Acts 2 for you. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each one of us hears them in his own native language? And then there's a list of all the languages. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them all declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. So whereas in Babel they spoke many tongues but with no understanding, which led only to chaos, here the church is speaking many languages which everyone understood, and it leads to this unity of, of worshiping one God. And again, the emphasis is on, if you read back Acts 2, the emphasis is on people heard the language, they understood the language. It's, it's always again on their ears were opened, rather than on my tongue was loosened. So Jesus has said famously, you know, the, the kingdom, his kingdom is, is coming and it's already here which means that the old kingdom is going and is already gone. And that final fate of Babylon then is, I mean, I could trace Babylon through other books of the New Testament, but I'm going to go straight to the end, to the Revelation. So again, Babylon is this name with theological weight throughout all of the Bible. Um, uh, by the way, as an, as an aside, <laughs> Babylon means a lot of things. If you... Uh, were to Google the Tower of Babel or Babylon, you'd get quite a few pages of American websites telling you that Babel is the United Nations. And then if you search a little bit further, you'll find lots of English websites telling you that Babel is the European Union. <laughs> and, uh, and, and yes, uh, both the United Nations and the European Union certainly can be Babylonish at times. But throughout Christian history, lots of things have been Babylon. Um, the Ottoman Empire, Turkey, has been Babylon. France was Babylon. Uh, the, the English Empire was Babylon. The American Empire has been called Babylon. The Catholic Church has been called Babylon by some Christians, and the Protestant Church has been called Babylon by some other Christians. And basically, frankly, they're all sort of right. You can find reasons why, yeah, at that time of history, for those sort of people, these organizations were acting 
bit like Babylon. In Revelation, when it talks about Babylon, the immediate context is he's talking about the Roman Empire, which was persecuting the earliest Christians. But John, in the book of Revelation, he's aware of the theological freight, the weight of Babylon, and he knows that when he's talking about Babylon in Revelation, he's talking about all the Babylons that have ever existed and will ever exist as well. All these systems of human pride and fear that get set up um, and either become autonomous from Jesus or are directly antagonistic to, to the idea that Jesus is Lord. And speaking about Babylon, Revelation 18 says, this is from 18, uh, starting at verse 4, but I'm going to skip around a bit. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. And I skip down to 21. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. By your magic spell all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of the saints and of all who have been killed on the earth. Again, it's no accident that the defeat of Babylon is preceded in the book of Revelation by the worship of people from every nation before the throne of God, worshiping the Lord with one voice. Um, again, another aside, if you, if you were, I dare you, type in the book of Revelation into Google and see what you get. There's a lot of weird things. Frankly, a lot of nonsense gets talked about Revelation. And one thing that bothers me about all the nonsense that gets talked is that it misses out how, as a historical document, this is the, one of the greatest uh, templates of Christian praise of Jesus as Lord in the book of Revelation. Some of the best hymns we've got come from Revelation. Some of our best liturgy comes from Revelation. The praise of Jesus is at its highest in the book of Revelation. Here's Revelation 7. Remember, this precedes the fall of Babylon. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne, and dogs too, in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their face before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That's the fall of Babylon. So the ancient story then of the Tower of Babel, it's located at the cusp of legend, history, and theology. It's a satire on human folly, and it's an origin story of an enemy, namely the human empires and schemes that set themselves in defiance against God. But unlike a supervillain or the dark side of the force, this bad guy does not pose an eternal and equal challenge to the good guy. Comically, well, sort of comically, Babylon was defeated almost as soon as it got started. And it continues to be defeated, whether it knows it or not. Thus, it serves the purpose in the Bible of being a continual reminder of what can happen and what does happen again and again when we set our schemes against God and when we refuse to confess with our mouths 
that it is Jesus Christ and not we ourselves who is Lord.